Right, Leviticus chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And your offering, and if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let this salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of the first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest, shall burn it as its, the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, he shall offer an animal from the herd, male or female. He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat coverings, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with all the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar, on the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall offer, then he shall offer from it, as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails 
and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we saw how Paul... The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans taps into the language of Leviticus in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One important question for us today is, how? How do we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice? The transition between uh, the old and the new covenant, after all, uh, means that Christ has done away with the sacrificial system because it has been fulfilled in Jesus, as we saw that and is made very clear in the book of Hebrews. So today, we don't need to lean our hand on a bull or a goat or a sheep to identify with it and then burn up the whole thing so that our sins can be atoned for and be accepted before the Lord. Praise God, we don't have to do that. I don't have any bulls, personally, so... And, and we praise God, we're not, we're not stoked about that just because it means we, we don't have to sacrifice bulls. I mean, that's certainly a perk. But because the covenant that we are now, as Hebrew says, is a better covenant. It is one based on better promises with a sacrifice of blood that is actually able to forgive sins. Christ's sacrifice made it possible for all of God's people, past, present, and future, to be counted as righteous on His account. And so, in view of God's mercy, in in this covenant by His blood, we are urged to offer our lives as living sacrifices, to be the ones who give everything up for the Lord. But how? How? Well, chapters 2 and 3 of Leviticus go some way in helping us with that. We will look at it this morning to see what it is that, that uh, God has revealed to His people and, uh, is, and, and how that then comes forward, looks to Jesus and directs us in our lives today. Now, I know I said uh, last week that uh, I was going to cover the other four offerings from chapters 2 uh, of right through to halfway through chapter 6. You might remember that from last week, but uh, I decided over through this week that I'll just cover these two chapters today, and we'll see what happens next week. The main, the main reason for that is because these first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Leviticus, which cover three different types of offerings, actually have a connection You see, each of them, the burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering in chapter 2, and the peace offering in chapter 3, all three of them result in the Lord's pleasure. What you find in each of these chapters as these offerings are given up is that they, they, uh, they result in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
And we saw that last week. That was the title of the sermon, A Pleasing Aroma. And so in each of these offerings, what we see is types and shadows of Jesus and how we should respond to Him. So this morning, uh, I'm going to draw out five ways that these chapters show us how we offer up our lives as living sacrifices. Firstly, we do so as a pleasing aroma. Secondly, we do so remembering His covenant. Thirdly, we do so with thankfulness. Fourthly, we do so giving Him our best. And fifthly, we do so in fellowship. I'm going to uh, move around a bit in these two chapters, so keep uh, your Bibles open and and have a look at that. I will put the verses on the screen, but I encourage you to have uh, our Bibles open. I encourage you to have your kidneys open this morning as we read God's Word. And that reference will make more sense later on. Let's begin with the first one, as a pleasing aroma. So as I said before, the the thing that unites chapters 1 to 3 is the fact that each of these offerings result in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And as we saw last week, that pleasing aroma is achieved through the burnt offering. You might recall, we saw in chapter 1, that whether the Israelites brought a bull or a a sheep or a goat or two birds, the result of that was the whole thing was burnt up and the blood of the animal would atone for the worshipper. Now, kids, uh, quite a few families are away, but the ones who are here, can any of you remember who were here last week, what atone means? You remember? It was a tricky word. But I, I tried to help you remember it by breaking down the word, Yeah. At one mint, that's right. At one mint. Now, I should have done this last week, but I've put it on the screen to show you when you, that's how the English word is actually constructed. At one mint. And, and so this, this word means to, to be atoned, to, to atonement means to be made one, to not be divided, to not be separated, to be in harmony with another. That's another word for that is to be reconciled, to be brought back together. In peace. And so we saw how last week our sin separates from God. That's been the case since Genesis 3, since the fall. And it needs to be atoned for. We need to be reconciled with God. And we saw last week that the burnt offering did that, does that, did that in, the, in verse 4 of chapter 1. And we also saw how this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who offered himself as a fragrant offering to the Lord for us. And so now we are a pleasing aroma before the Lord because of Jesus. We are reconciled to God and accepted because of him. And what we have in the grain and the peace offerings in chapters 2 and 3 builds on the burnt offering, quite literally in some ways. The grain offering uh, is up first in chapter 2. And the grain offering often accompanied the burnt offering. One of the first things Moses uh, does when the tabernacle is put up is offer both a burnt and a grain offering on the altar. You can see that in Exodus 40 verse 29. And as we saw last week, the burnt offering was described as a food offering, as, just as the grain and the peace offerings are. And, and while this creates the imagery of these offerings coming together as a meal, 
We saw also last week how that was not supposed to communicate that God needed it in order to eat. You remember that? The, the, the pagans, they, they thought that the gods needed the food and so they offer this up and they have to give it to them. But no, no, that's, that, that's not how it works. But nonetheless, God doesn't need it, right? He owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. And nonetheless, the imagery served this purpose of a meal. That's why it makes sense that the grain offering often accompanied the burnt offering. They went together. And it was part of the meal offered. And the, the grain offering could be offered in the form of fine flour or cooked several different ways. And you see that in uh, verses 4 to 7 of chapter 2. You could bring the grain offering baked in the oven. You could bring it baked on a griddle or you could bring it cooked in a pan. Uh, I'm not really sure what determined, uh, perhaps your culinary skills or something. Uh, if it were me, I would just, I'd just bring the fine flour. That's that. I, trust me, you, know, you priests, you don't want to eat what I'm making. And so uh, not, only, not only that, it likely carried the, the sense of, of, of paying a gift to the more powerful party. So this, this grain offering, what, what it was doing was you, you brought this hope, sorry, the, the idea, the, the, the Hebrew word that is used right throughout chapter 2 of offering is, is the same word that is used in other parts of the Old Testament to mean a gift that you bring to a more powerful party to try and appease them. There's a few examples of this in the Old Testament, but in Genesis chapter 32, verse 18, we see it when Jacob is preparing to meet with his brother Esau. Now, kids, I don't know if you remember this story, but Jacob was, he had the nickname of the supplanter, the one who, who was, was a swindler, he was a, he was a trickster. And he tricked his own older brother out of his birthright and his blessing, and then he ran away. So you can imagine Esau would probably be pretty angry with his brother Jacob, especially if he wanted to hold a grudge, that would be the case for a long time. And so after many, 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 many years, Jacob is preparing to meet Esau again. And what does he do? He, he prepares, as Genesis 32, 18 in the ESV translate it, translates it, a present for Esau. He, he's preparing this, this huge gift of lots of animals and all that kind of stuff to, to basically try and say, hey, please accept me to his brother. Please don't be angry with me anymore. That's the same word there that is used in Leviticus 2 for the grain offering. And that's the same sense that we have as we, as we offer that up. And that's a sense that makes sense for our relationship with God, doesn't it? After all, who's the more powerful party when it's God and us? Him. <laughs> I'm yet to meet any human ruler, any powerful human person who is all-powerful and all-knowing and is everywhere at once. You see, we bring our offerings to the Lord in hope that He would be pleased. In hope that He would be favourable towards us. That is fundamentally the attitude with which we must approach God in humility, recognizing that we are the ones in need. We are not the ones who dictate the terms to him who are in control. Do you approach the Lord like that? Do you recognize who he is? 
Or do you come to him in pride instead? As we see in the word, when we come to him in humility, when we come to him trusting in Christ alone, we receive his mercy and his favor. Now, the peace offering of chapter 3 had uh, many similarities to the burnt offering, but it also had a few significant differences. Well, firstly, uh, the offering could be male or female, unlike in the burnt offering where it had to be male. Now, I'm not sure uh, why exactly the male was, was somehow prized or more. That t- tends to be a cultural aspect there. But in, by, by indicating that you could bring a male or female for this offering, it was, it was showing that the standard was not as high as with the burnt offering. Another difference between the burnt offering and the peace offering is that the purpose for this offering is not stated. As you saw before in Leviticus 1 verse 4, the burnt offering says explicitly that it was for atonement and for us to be, for, for the people to be accepted before the Lord. So perhaps the most significant difference between the two, however, is that in the peace offering, not all of the animal was burnt up. As we read before in chapter 3, we see that it was only the fat off the entrails and a couple of organs that were offered up, that were sacrificed in the peace offering. The rest was eaten by the priests. And the one who brings the offering of worship, the the worshipper, and others. And we'll come to those points a bit later. So there are some some, uh, key differences between the peace offering and the burnt offering. But it makes sense that there are key similarities as well. Because as I mentioned earlier, the result of these three offerings is the same. It is a pleasing aroma. They are working towards the same goal. That's why it's worth recognizing that as we give up our lives as living sacrifices in complete devotion and giving up our everything, there are various components to that. There are various ways that that works out in our lives. Those that we, we ought to put our energy and attention into that. It begins with the desire and the, t- and the intention to do so. It begins with the burnt offering, with the desire to give our whole selves up to the Lord. And that is actually seen in our passage. So it is with us. The burnt offering came first, and it came specifically for atonement. That was the first step in in our offering being a pleasing aroma. Without it, then it's not even worth talking about whatever other offerings we might give. You see, on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, the way that our sin is atoned for happens by our repenting and turning away from our sin and trusting in Christ for forgiveness, trusting in His perfect sacrifice to be counted towards us. Our sin is credited to him and his righteousness is credited to us. 
And it is on that basis, it is on that foundation that the rest of our offerings, the rest of the dedication of our lives, all of our faithful acts of love and obedience to the Lord are given. They cannot be accepted without that. And so it is here. We see, we see it in verse 5 of Leviticus 3. Aaron's son shall burn it, the, the peace offering, on the altar, on top of the burnt offering, in the same place after the burnt offering has been given. There is no peace, there is no fellowship with God without their first being atonement. In order to be welcomed at the table of the Lord in fellowship, one must first have their sins atoned for. Friends, without Jesus, even the best of the best of our devotion to God, of our service to Him, of our obedience to Him, would be a stench before Him. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ or you have not yet turned to him, this is something that you must grasp. You might be the most morally upright person in this room and it wouldn't surprise me if you were. But our sin blemishes us. It is there, even in areas that we cannot see. There are spots on our offering that even the most careful examiner, even the most fastidious preparer, even the most faithfully obedient person misses. And that makes our offerings unacceptable on their own. What we need is a completely unblemished, a totally, utterly perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. Thank God that we have one in Jesus. And if you have not yet put your faith in him, if you have not leaned on him to be your substitute, then let me urge you to do so today. There is no other way under heaven by which we can be saved. And it is only once we have done that, that we may offer everything else. That we may offer our whole lives as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That brings us to our next point, remembering his covenant. You see, once we've put our trust in Christ, it's something that we want to keep reminding ourselves of at every opportunity that this is the basis upon which we are accepted. Well, these two offerings reminded Israel of the covenant. And that's most clearly seen in chapter 2 in verse 13. You notice the Lord gives the instruction that uh, they shall season all of their grain offerings with salt. Not because he wants to encourage them to have uh, heart problems or whatever it is that's an excess of salt might cause. No, because as he says, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. You see, this little instruction that is given at the end, it applies to all of the grain offerings. So all of the instructions that are given in chapter 2 must have salt. However you cooked it, 
whichever way you brought it, the salt needed to be present. It is the salt of the covenant. Now, why salt specifically? We're not sure. It's another one of those details that probably made sense to the Israelites, but it's a bit obscured to us now. One possible and reasonable explanation is that it served as a counterpart to the leaven and the honey. You see that in verse 11 of chapter 2. The Lord says, There shall be no leaven or honey in your food offerings, in your grain offerings. Honey is sweet, salt is not sweet. Kind of makes sense. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, why was the honey not allowed? Uh, there's a, again, that's a little bit obscure to us. There's a few attempts at explanation. But perhaps I think the most compelling is that the surrounding nations often included leaven and honey in their sacrifices to their gods. So not having that and having the opposite of it was yet another way of the Lord's showing how his people are to be set apart, how they are to be different to the surrounding nations. <clears throat> and whatever the reason... The salt represented the covenant, and that was the key thing to recognize. The covenant that the Lord is referring to here is the one that the Israelites just made with him, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 22 verses, sorry, Exodus chapter 20 to 24. A covenant was an agreement that involved terms and promises as well as consequences. And so there were blessings for obedience and there were curses for disobedience. At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with Israel. Verses 7 and 8 of Exodus 24 says this, Then he, being Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Do you see that? That's their, their commitment to the covenant. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the Lord tells Israel that whenever they bring any grain offering, it had to have salt and the salt would remind them of the covenant that they had made with him. And not only would it be a reminder of their commitment to obedience, it would also be a reminder of God's promises. Once again, that covenant would be fulfilled in Jesus. And we now have our own reminder that we are to remember forever in the Lord's Supper. It's seen every time we take the Lord's Supper together. In the bread and the cup are reminders of the fact that we are partakers in a better covenant. We are partakers in a covenant that is built on surer promises, on a perfect sacrifice. You see, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we take it remembering the new covenant. And by remembering, that doesn't just mean that we bring it to mind and we think, well, isn't that lovely? 
Just as the Israelites would have done, we remember that God will not fail in bringing about his promises. And we lean, we, we rest, we trust in him and his promises. We trust that he has not failed to save us and that he will not fail to keep us and that he will surely bring us into glory. We remember his covenant commitment to us. But you know, it's not just uh, us who remember. When I say remembering his covenant, it is us remembering his covenant, but also it is him remembering his covenant. Notice how in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, uh, when when the grain offering is brought forward, there was to be a memorial portion. You see that in verses 2 and verses 9 and verses 16 of chapter 2. A portion of the offering was burnt on the altar and the rest was given to the priests. So this portion served as a memorial for the Israelites, a reminder of their offering to the Lord. But most likely the main point of the memorial portion was to seek God's remembrance. Now, kids, have you ever read or heard in the Old Testament about how God remembers people? You ever read that? You come across that in your readings? And God remembered so-and-so, God remembered Noah, God remembered Abraham. You come across that, yeah? Sound familiar? Now, here's an example from Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. I remember when I was a kid, I read these, and I thought, well, that's weird. I mean, if God is God, he knows everything. How, how can he possibly forget, right? How does, how does God forget? But what this term remembered captures is not that God somehow forgot and then thought, oh, that's right, Israel. Yeah, oh, whoops. No, no, no. When it's used like this, as it is many times in the Old Testament, it describes God's moving towards the person or, or the people that he is remembering. He's acting in a way that is favorable towards the one that he is remembering. That is what is being communicated by that word. And given that, as we've seen, the the point of these first three offerings in Leviticus is that his people would be accepted and pleasing to him and and that he would be favorable towards them. Well, then it makes sense that this is what that memorial portion is capturing. It is a a plea, it is a request. Our offerings of worship and thanksgiving, they're not just us, us remembering Him, they are also us seeking His movement towards us. It is our desire to, to have Him remember us, to act favorably towards us, to uphold His covenant. So as we remember his covenant, he also remembers us. And as we've already said, because of the certainty of what Christ has done, we can do so confidently. We can up bring that prayer before the Lord, knowing he will hear, knowing he will move, knowing that our offerings are a pleasing aroma. Brothers and sisters, when we consider how wonderful that is, how awesome a privilege it is 
to be accepted before him, what can we do but give thanks? And that brings us to our next point. We offer up our lives with thankfulness. Are you a thankful person? If not, you should be. This is part of our worship to the Lord. And as we meditate on His love and grace shown to us in the new covenant, surely this naturally flows. And actually, we see this in both of these offerings. Verse 14 of chapter 2 in Leviticus describes how one of the occasions for bringing a grain offering was a first fruits offering. And kids, do any of you know what first fruits means or what that might? Have, Have a guess of what you think first fruits might mean. Your first fruits, well done. All you did was separate the words and there's the answer. That's right. So the first fruit offering was, was bringing the first of your fruits from the harvest. And in so doing, this was an act of thankfulness to God in worship. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 8 to 10. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you hear that? They're describing all the great things that God has done for them, the redemption that he has made. And what's the response? Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. You see, this the first fruit offering was a response to the salvation that God had given, delivered to Israel. As for the peace offering, later on in Leviticus, we see that there are three reasons given for why a peace offering was offered up in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 12 and 16. Basically, the first reason was to express thankfulness. Secondly, was to do so as a vow offering like Hannah did when she dedicated Samuel. And thirdly, as a freewill offering, which was, as again, pretty straightforward. You did out of your own free will. Many of the offerings that we will read about in the rest of Leviticus, they, they were offered because they had to be. But one could offer a, a peace offering as a free will offering, an act of devotion and worship. And so one of the reasons that an Israelite could offer up a, <clears throat> a bull or a cow or a sheep or a goat was simply, as a peace offering, was simply to express gratitude, simply to say thank you for all the Lord had done. Are you thankful for all that the Lord has done. Self-help guru Melody Beattie says, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough. See, research shows that those who live thankful lives tend to be happier. And so in modern psychology today, you'll find if people are unhappy, one thing they'll try and get you to do is to just generally be thankful. It doesn't really matter what you believe, uh, but as long as you're just generally 
thankful and show gratitude, then that should help you be a happier person. And I'm sure that's true. Uh, That would make sense. But there are several problems with this if you approach that without God. I think the most important of which is the question of, well, who or what are you thankful to? Sure, you can be thankful to people who have been kind to you. That's good. And you can be thankful to the universe if you don't have anything specific, which is often what ends up happening. But as far as I can tell, your thanks, if if you want to be thankful, if you want to have an attitude of gratitude, as they say, then that must be directed towards something, right? If there's nothing to thank, well, then it's not thankfulness. It's just positive thoughts. The very act of thankfulness requires something to be thankful to. And so I ask the question, well, can you really be thankful if you are not sure if what you're thanking actually has your best interests in mind? Can you truly be thankful for that? Can you be sure that the universe desires your good? What if you've been handed a life that you don't want? What if you have a severe illness? What if you have an exhausting home life? What if life feels empty to you because none of it is filled with the things that you desire the most? Surely you can only be thankful when you know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that the one you are thanking really is being good to you. And our problem as Christians is that too often what we think is good for us actually isn't. I've never heard of somebody thanking a thief for stealing lots of money from them. But I'm sure a recovered gambling addict would be thankful for the friend who took their money to help them. How much more, brothers and sisters, ought we to be thankful to our God? Especially, especially when he works in ways that seem like they are harm in the moment, but ultimately are for our good. So often, I'm sure you have heard it, quoted it, memorized it yourself. We hear Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things... Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Uh, Unlike many other verses that are taken out of context, that one isn't. It's true. 
He has given us innumerable blessings, the most significant of which is Jesus, who has atoned for our sin, the burnt offering, accepted before Him when we would otherwise be cast out into the wilderness. That is the chief good thing that God has given us. But not only that, he has promised that he is working for our good in our lives. He makes no mistakes on that front. And so, yes, that means that it includes times where it feels like he has stolen from us. When he takes our money, when he takes our health, when he takes our loved ones, our dreams, our comfort, our very lives, and anything else that we would set up in our hearts as idols in place of him. When he takes those, it is for our good. The question is, when he does will we recognize that we are the gambling addict? Or will we accuse him of being a thief? Brothers and sisters, if you struggle with seeing God's goodness, even in the midst of great tragedy, offer up thanksgiving to him. Now, I'm not suggesting you don't grieve. I'm not suggesting that, that the, the, the effects of the fall should not have any kind of emotional impact on us. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's there for a reason. But in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your lament, remind yourself of all the things that God has given you. Trust His Word when He says that He is at work in and through it for your good and give Him thanks. In the midst of your trials, how hard do you look for thanksgiving to the Lord? How hard do you look for the things that you can be thankful for to Him? Give him thanks for your salvation. Give him thanks for his kindness in removing things from your life that so easily take his place. Give him thanks for the things that cause you to depend more on him and less on yourself. Give him thanks that he shows you grace and mercy even in the midst of your sin and your failings every single day. Give him thanks that even if he does take your life, that it is not just for your good, but also for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are left behind. Even if we may not understand how that is the case in this life. If you're finding it hard to do this on your own, let me urge you, let me exhort you to meet with godly brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you grow in offering up thanksgiving to the Lord. Because one of the ways that we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice is by being thankful to our God. And it is with thankfulness that we offer up our best, which brings us to our fourth point. 
let me ask you this morning, are you, are you a perfectionist or are you a P's are degrees kind of person? There's at least one quizzical look, so let me explain what that second phrase means. When I say P's are degrees, it is referring to the fact that a P grade in your university will still get you a degree. And if you're unfamiliar, P stands for pass. It is the lowest grade you can get before you fail. It's a way of saying, uh, I don't have to strive for really good marks. As long as I just do enough to pass, then I'm good. Which do you think God prefers? You might think God is a perfectionist. For good reason, because we see signs throughout these offerings that everything that comes to him must be perfect. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see that the offering is one of fine flour, which is a way of saying it is the best flour. We also see in that verse that frankincense was added to it, which was a costly and valuable perfume. Not only that, the offering was called most holy in verse 3, meaning it was set apart to the Lord to a very high degree. It was so set apart, so holy, that only the priests were allowed to have it. As for the peace offering, we read in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the animal had to be unblemished, same as the burnt offering. No blemishes, no spots, no imperfections. But perhaps the, the indicator of this that might be most surprising to us is that the offering up in the peace offering was only the fat of the animal. And that was also a sign of the high standards. It doesn't sound like it to us because, you know, we say that fat isn't good for you. It's not good for your health. I mean, I've read too many conspiracy theories now to know whether that's true or not. And not to mention the fact that in our day and age, the body shape that we consider to be a desirable one is not one of obesity. So we don't associate fat with a good thing. But in the ancient world, the fat was considered the best part of the meat. It was what we would consider perhaps the, the filet mignon to be. Not that I personally have ever had filet mignon, but people tell me that it is the best cut of beef you can get. So even though the priests and others were, were able to eat of some of the, the peace offering, which we'll get to next, some of the animal that was offered, the best part of the animal was still reserved for the Lord. He received the best part. And that, of course, makes sense. It would be easy to read these chapters and these verses and to see the, how the offering that God expects is meant to be the best and to think, oh, God must be a perfectionist. And the problem with that idea is that we are perfectionists in a sinful way. A person these days, more often than not, when I hear the term perfectionist, it's usually in a negative way, right? Because in, in our culture, we talk about that uh, as the, the perfectionist looks at their perfection and, and only sees when they fail to be perfect, they are defined by their identity in life comes from doing everything perfectly. Their worth is measured by their perfection. And so when they fail, that brings them crashing down. 
And that's a great danger. We need to remember the order of the offerings. We are not perfect, but we are accepted on the basis of Christ's perfection. So yes, God is perfect, but he accepts us because of his grace and not our perfection. But don't think this means that God is okay with a a Pisa degrees kind of attitude. Too often we see that amongst some of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't we? Well, I'm saved by grace. So uh, as long as I do enough to get in, then I'm good. The book of Leviticus shows us that the Lord's holiness is to be taken seriously. And as those who have been shown mercy, then we take holiness seriously too. As Leviticus says later in chapter 19, be holy as I am holy. Our living sacrifice is not one of half-hearted, couch-slouching obedience. Which do you lean towards? Which is your struggle? Whichever one it is, whether the extremes of perfectionism or Pisa degrees, then perhaps one aspect of the peace offering might help you. Verses 10 and 11 say, And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Why is it that the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver were also offered to the Lord? Again, this is a detail that is perhaps lost to history. But I like one theory, which suggests that it's because the kidneys were seen by the Israelites as the seat of emotion. The same way that we think of our hearts today is how the kidneys were thought of. And that is, in fact, how English translators have translated the same term for kidneys in some verses of the Old Testament, like in Psalm 26, verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart, the same word for kidneys, the same Hebrew word, and my mind. The funny thing is, is if you actually go and look at that, there's often a note in the Bibles that say, in Hebrew, the actual Hebrew words are, test my kidneys and my heart. And we've translated it as, test my heart and my mind. (laughs) Now, the, re- the reason for that is because if, if we just kept that as kidneys in the English translation, no English speaker would understand what's going on. So we understand there that when, when the word heart is in Psalm 26 verse 2, that it's talking about the, the, the internal place within us that is the, the seat of our emotions. I love the imagery of that. The kidneys were offered as a way for the worshipper to symbolically offer up their inner emotions and their self, their heart to the Lord. At least I think that's what's going on. But even if that's not what was intended, that is certainly something that we are called to do, isn't it? 
Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is what we are to do with everything that is within us. And it always comes back to the gospel. If you are struggling with perfectionism, then recognize that you are only accepted before God because of Christ. There is no other way. That ought to make you feel a release from the pressure of needing to be perfect. And if it doesn't, then brother, sister, you must ask yourself why you are holding on to a desire to justify yourself. Rest in His grace. Turn your heart to Him. Receive His mercy. And if you're struggling with Pisa degrees and couch slatching, then uh, hoping that your offering will just get you a pass, then you also must come back to the gospel. Do you realize how great the cost was of, of our Lord Jesus Christ for your sin? Does it grieve you to know that whenever you sin, it's like sitting up in an operating theater after a surgeon has just saved your life and punching him in the face? Any kind of obedience, any kind of living sacrifice of a life lived in total surrender to the Lord, giving Him our very best, it all begins with staring, staring at, meditating on, embedding in our hearts, pressing right down into our kidneys, His infinite grace. When you let the truth of the gospel transform your heart, then you will begin to see that to take a ah, just a mediocre approach is totally unworthy of our King and our Saviour. If you feel apathetic about giving God your best in your life, in your time, in your choices, in your money, in your motivation, David Goggins is not going to help you. Self-help gurus, self-motivation gurus are not going to change your heart. But facing your own sin and meditating on this glorious gospel of grace, that will. Love him with all heart, soul, mind and strength. And as you do, you'll see the wonderful privilege that it leads us to, which brings us to our final point. How do we offer up our lives as living sacrifices in fellowship? As I mentioned, one of the key differences between the burnt offering and these offerings of grain and peace is that only the best parts were offered as an offering and the rest was eaten by the priests or the people. For the priests, this meant that they could dedicate themselves to the Lord's work without needing to establish some other kind of, of support, of, of you know, tending to their own flock so that they can eat. And it's worth noting that this serves as the basis for doing the same with God's gospel workers today. It's true that... Uh, Paul talks about working as a tent maker to support himself, which is why doing that is totally fine. But ideally, such workers have their living provided for by God's people. And we see that several times in the New Testament, but perhaps the clearest where the Old Testament practice is connected to the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 to 12. 
Listen to what Paul says. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we enjoy anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see what Paul's doing there? He's, he's, he's drawing on the Old Testament imagery to show how God's gospel workers today have the right to do the same. Now, sadly, it is not always the case in many churches that pastors are happily supported and provided for generously. In our zeal to be good stewards of our finances as Christians, we've falsely reasoned that these gospel workers, well, they can have a living, but it, it, it should just be just above the poverty line. Now, the opposite excess, of course, is prosperity preachers driving Ferraris and living in mansions. I get that. But churches that love the Lord and who preach His gospel should recognise that enabling gospel workers to focus on their work for providing for them well financially is one of the ways that God advances His kingdom. One of the ways that He grows and disciples His people. And church, this is a great opportunity to thank you for your generosity in allowing us to do this. And not just for my wage, but also for the gospel workers overseas that we have supported and hope to continue to support. It is a marvellous testament to God's grace and to your generosity that a church of our size can do this. I pray that it would always be a mark of our church. I hope we will always know it to be true that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I pray and hope that we will always seek to look after our gospel work as well as part of our living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I mentioned that because that's one aspect of that, but it wasn't just about providing for the priesthood. Covenants that were made between people were often accompanied by eating together. We see it in Genesis 26. Between Abimelech and Isaac, you see, they make a covenant and then they have a feast. So it shouldn't surprise us that God says in Deuteronomy 12 that when they bring these offerings to him, the, the peace offerings, they are to eat them before the Lord and they are to eat them all together. Look at the list of people seated at verse 18 in Deuteronomy 12. You shall eat these, eat them, the offerings, before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. It's appropriate that the peace offering is sometimes translated as the fellowship offering because it captures an aspect of that offering in the underlying Hebrew word that it's probably getting at. You see, having had their sins atoned for, the Israelites now came to God's table in fellowship with him. This meal was eaten before the Lord, in fellowship with the Lord. But not just in fellowship with him, with one another. 
As the Israelites ate this meal, they ate as a people who shared the common identity of being saved by the Lord from the hand of Pharaoh, ones who had been redeemed out of slavery and had their sins atoned for. And once again, this finds its fulfillment in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, we have been brought into fellowship with the Lord through the blood of Jesus. And he now gathers us as his people. And as his people, he instituted a memorial meal for us to remember the covenant that he has brought us into forever. It's because of Jesus and because of his covenant that we have peace, that we have fellowship with God. That's why we can sing, as we did earlier this morning, what a fellowship, what a joy divine. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. What a privilege, what a joy. Look at God's instruction there in Deuteronomy 12 at the end. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And so it is with us. We offer up our lives as living sacrifices, as a pleasing aroma because of Christ. We do it remembering his covenant. We do it with thankfulness and we give our best to him. And we do so knowing that we have been welcomed into fellowship with the Lord. The Lord's Supper is sobering as we remember that it took nothing less than the sacrifice of God's only Son to atone for our sin. But it is also a joyful occasion as we remember that He is with us now and will be with us forever. That's why we're going to finish this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. And this meal, as I've just said, is a meal that we take as his people together, as his church, in fellowship with the Lord and in fellowship with one another. It's also why it is absolutely essential that we take it as his people. And why, as we say in our church, that uh, if you are visiting our church this morning, then we are so glad and we love the fact that you are with us. And that we urge you to ensure that, that you unite yourself with a local body of believers, which is a, a physical expression of the, of the invisible truth that we are united to God's universal church by faith. And so as we come to the table this morning, if that is you, you are one who trusts in Jesus, you lean on his substitutionary sacrifice. And that has been expressed in your obedience through baptism as a believer and unity with a local body of believers. Then please join with us as we take the Lord's Supper today. But if not, then let me urge you, encourage you to remain seated, to meditate on the truth that we have heard, to recognize that we do not come to this table lightly or flippantly, 
but soberly. Acknowledging, reverencing the holiness of the Lord our God. As we offer up our lives as living sacrifices, we remember with thankful and joyful hearts the blood of the new covenant. Our perfect sacrifice. In a moment we will sing the song, Alleluia, sing to Jesus. Let me read to you, and during which you may, those I've invited may take a piece of bread and a cup from the front and return to your seat where we will take it together. Let me read verse 3 for us to meditate on as we prepare our hearts. Sorry, verse 2. Alleluia, not as orphans. Are we left in sorrow now? Alleluia, he is near us. Faith believes, but knows not how. Though the cloud from sight received him, whom the angels now adore, shall our hearts forget his promise. I am with you evermore.